We're in Matthew chapter 5. Please turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 31. And um, I want, so this has been something that has really captured me. Um, Jesus is giving us, in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving you and I an imagination of what it looks like for us to follow Jesus and the kind of people that we are, that we will inevitably be or that he's turning us into as we interact with him and as we follow him. Let me get a little head start here um, because we could, we could really misinterpret these things um, to our peril if we don't. Jesus is not only commanding us to do certain things as, he's, as his followers, but he's saying that he's, he is, we are becoming something as his followers. There's a nuance there that's really important for us to grab onto that I'm hoping that you're talking about and, and, and following through in your conversations, especially in your home group. Not like, for example, last week we talked about anger. He's not simply saying, don't be angry. He's saying, as you interact with me, I'm gonna turn you into the kind of person who is patient. You're going to be marked by patience as you. It's not just about you becoming like Jesus. It's about what would Jesus' life look like if he lived your life? Again, a nuance there. In other words, what would Jesus' life be like if he were you, with your upbringing, with your personality, with your gender, with your family, um, with your experiences, with your loves, with the things that you're into? How would Jesus be if he were you? Okay, so really important. And one of those things is however you are, as you keep interacting with Jesus, you're going to start being more and more patient. You're gonna start becoming more and more uh, less angry, so to speak. Um, what does it mean? And he's, ma he's, he's making us into new kinds of humans. No one goes out and murders someone in a vacuum. No one, goes, no one wakes up in the morning and then skips their coffee and murders someone by lunch. That just doesn't happen, right? It's, Jesus is saying if you back up, if you get underneath of it, there's been a spirit or a character that's being cultivated for days, months, years, perhaps decades that has turned people into the sort of people who could fly off the handle perhaps and kill somebody, enrage somebody. We've been cultivating. We are becoming. This is ancient wisdom that we have long since abandoned in our culture. We are becoming things. And we have rabbis that we're following. Practices that we do that are forever changing and shaping us into the kind of people that we are and the kind of people we will be. Jesus is coming to say, I'm your rabbi, come follow me, and I will change you into um, what, a new, what a real human is supposed to be like. Okay. Likewise, this week, Jesus is, is saying that not only are, are we as his followers marked by a character of patience, but we're also marked by a character of purity. By a character of purity. What does it mean to be a person? And what does it mean to be a sexual person as a follower of Jesus? That's what we're dealing with today. So let, let me pray, and then we'll read it, and we'll jump right, in, jump right into verse 27. Lord Jesus, please, I'm begging you, guide us through this material. This is your <clears throat> heart for us. Would you help us to understand what you're saying? Would you help us to see what you're doing and to hear your voice? And would you help us to apply it to our lives? Would you help me guide us through as like a tour guide through this passage? Help me not miss things. There's so much here. Help me remember everything that you've shown me. And I just ask that you would help your word, your spirit, and my heart be in sync. In Jesus' name, amen. You have heard that it was said. That's um, something that rabbis would say. There's kind of a verbal formula going on here. You've heard that it was said. It was something that a rabbi would say right before they would quote the Old Testament. And here it is. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And here's the other part of that formula. But I say to you, in other words, there's a popular interpretation of Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, the seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. But here's, I'm gonna tell you what it really means. That's what Jesus is saying. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent 
has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right eye, if your right hand causes you to sin, get your pocket knife out, cut that thing out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Verse 31, it was also said, he's gonna quote again, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, light material this morning. I'm sure we'll be out of here early. Um, now this is, I'm gonna warn you, I'm not gonna lie, we're gonna have a, a real frank conversation about sexuality and, G, and how Jesus, um, Jesus looks at this term. And it's very similar, you'll notice a lot of similarities to how he looked at murder and anger last week. Um, his assessment on murder, Jesus is saying that no, same, likewise, no one commits adultery in a vacuum, or um, as Dale Bruner um, translates this convictingly, the word adultery, he says, no one breaks marriage. No one breaks marriage, um, but it's something that's going on in their heart. No one does that in a vacuum. No one wakes up in the morning and then accidentally has an affair in the afternoon. No, that act started days, if not months, if not years, if not decades before with someone cultivating a certain character and aptitude for those types of things. In fact, according to Jesus in this passage, if you were to look back on the timeline up until it all started, it started with a choice, perhaps, to look again, to look a second time at a second glance. The word look in the Greek here is the word blepo. And just like anger last week, it was in the present participle. Those are, here's what you can, you can think of. Greek words in the present participle are ing words, I-N-G on the end. So last week, it was someone who is being angry in the present participle, right? It's the same way, it's the same grammar here. It's someone who is looking um, we would call it someone who is staring. That would be the word that we use. Our word look has a very small, uh, or has a very, excuse me, wide semantic range. It could mean a glance, it could mean a stare, but in the Greek, it's very specific. And Jesus is talking about someone who keeps on looking, or in other words, is going around trying to look. Someone who has that going on in their heart. Also, the preposition with that comes right after that is the word pros in the Greek, and it would be better translated towards or to or in order to. So that's why a lot, I don't really enjoy, I, I love the NIV, but I think there's some better translations out there. This, like the, new, the uh, new English, or excuse me, the ESV translates this lust, or someone looking intending to lust. That's a great way of looking at it, or a great way of of translating this. Anyone who looks to lust, somebody else has said, or anyone who is looking in order to lust, um, it shouldn't be with. Someone that's looking with lust is different, isn't it, than someone who's looking in order to lust. With implies something that's just happening to you. In order to implies intention or a character. I'm looking in order to lust after another person. So here's what I want to, I just want to clear this up right away. Jesus is not talking about noticing beauty. That's not what he's referring to here. He's not, he's not saying that it's sin to notice a beautiful person. Are there beautiful people in the world? Yeah. Yes. And is, is it wrong to notice that? No, it's a good thing. God, Genesis 1, God made everything and it was good, very good. Okay, so Jesus is not talking about noticing beauty, but he's also not talking about being, being attracted to someone of the opposite sex. He's not talking about that. 
Noticing beautiful people, being attracted to beautiful people, or even being sexually drawn to people on a biological or neurochemical kind of level is not necessary, necessarily sin. In fact, you can't help that. In fact, on a certain level, to see a beautiful woman or a man and be attracted to them is normal and healthy. It's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. Furthermore, he's not talking about the momentary hit of sexual desire that comes over you when you see somebody in the summertime that's not wearing very many clothes. Or you're at a mall and you see a Victoria's Secret poster and in an instant there is a chemical neurobiological wash that comes over your body, even against your own will, that comes over your body And in a deep part of me, in a deep part of you, you are not the deepest part, but in a very deep part of you, you want more than anything else to look twice or to look again and to look again and so on and so on. That is not necessarily sin. That is temptation. And we we cannot mix up the two. That is temptation. That initial biological flood is not sin. You can't help that. You can influence it. You can have some influence over your temptation, like uh, not reading certain things or not watching certain shows or or something that you know will trigger you, uh, looking away or or if you decide to do, of course, you can influence that temptation, but the initial hit, that initial wash is not what Jesus is talking about. So first, I want to debunk any kind of idea that Jesus is the stuffy, monastic prude or something like that. That's not, that's not what's going on here. The problem here is not sexual desire in and of itself or beauty or even the male or female body. Those are good things to Jesus. Remember, Jesus is God in the flesh, He's the one that created male and female, the male and female body with desire, with intent, with design, with beauty, and with art. Remember, Jesus, Jesus grew up under the culture of the Torah where Gen- the Genesis account, the creation account, culminates in this beautiful love scene between a man and a woman. Let me read it to you. This is uh, Genesis chapter 2. Then the man said, he sees a woman for the first time, it's Eve, and he says, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That was a Hebrew idiom or a Hebrew phrase that basically what we would say in our day is, she's a perfect fit for me. Now, we can allegorize that. We can say what all of that means. But what it at least means is that she's a perfect fit with my body. She was made for me. I was made for her. We were made to be together in this beautiful act of intimacy and love and selflessness and selfless giving. Sex in the Bible is a beautiful, wonderful thing. And if you still don't believe me, read the Song of Songs. This is what Jesus was shaped in. Jesus heard the Song of Songs read every year at Passover. Every year which is the Song of Songs, if you haven't read it, you know, wait till you're ready, but it is a, it is a celebration um, of erotic, beautiful love between a man and a woman. It's a poem that talks all about that, and it's classy, and it's beautiful, and it's gorgeous, and it's the celebration of that type of a thing with no shame whatsoever. This is where Jesus, this is how Jesus grew up from this, these ideas. So, Um, Jesus is not saying, oh, sex is bad or bodies are shameful or you shouldn't be attracted to the opposite sex. You shouldn't, he's not saying any of those things. So what is he saying? What is he talking about? And before I go there, the reason I harp on that so much is because I have seen a lot of damage done in my own life and I think in the lives of others that I have discipled, especially as a youth pastor, who have taught this shameful view of sex or this shameful view of the human body, or who just naturally treat all of it like it's disgusting. I have been with kids um, who are ashamed to tell their parents that they actually are attracted to the opposite sex because it's sinful and it's wrong, especially if you've grown up in the, what's known as the purity culture of the 90s. Uh, You know, that has done 
in my opinion, a tremendous amount of damage because it emphasized, um, it made the, a biblical view of sexuality very imbalanced to the point where Pope John Paul II went out of his way to write an entire a beautiful philosophical treatise and theological treatise about the Bible and Jesus and sexuality. It's one of the best things I've ever read. It's so good. If you want to give that a read, look up Pope John Paul II and his work on sex. This is before he became Pope and it is just wonderful. So good and so well balanced with years and years of thoughts, thought into it. That, I want to be clear, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. What is he talking about? He's talking about when a man stares at a woman or when a woman stares at a man, but Jesus's context here, he's talking to men, so we're gonna, we're gonna deal with that text this way, but yes, it does work both ways. Um, he's talking about when a man stares at a woman in order to get sexual gratification from her body. That's his intent. The word lust is epithemeo, and it means wanting to use someone to satisfy our cravings, to satisfy our sexual desires and our cravings. So it's not that first look. It's not even that initial hit of sexual desire. Jesus is talking about what you do after that. It's, it's very similar to anger. Remember last week we talked about anger just, it is. And on, on the bottom level, it, 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 um, erupts inside of us and it serves a purpose. It's to stop somebody from thwarting our intended will. Or it, Without anger, you can't protect your family. Without anger, you can't do a lot of things. A, a, an angerless society would be a horrible society on the bottom level. But the more you feed it, fuel it, nurture it, purposely mull it over in your mind, it begins to grow and it becomes out of control. It's a dangerous thing. It needs to be a uh, approach with great care and great concern. Lust is a lot that way. It's not that first look. You can't really even help that. But it's when you look again. It's when you blepo. In other words, you are looking and maybe you're tracing the outline of her body up and down. Extracting joy and pleasure from that. Or maybe you're imagining what it would be like to be had to have a sexual encounter with that person and you make this movie in your head or before you know it, you're picking out curtains in your mind with that person. You know, it's like, you know, that's what it is. When you mull it over and you're looking to somebody and it's just for you, he's describing the inner world, the inner act of, rather than, the over, than overriding your desire for lust, you feed it, you give into it, and you nurture it rather than stopping it and cutting it off. Instead of uprooting it, you water it and you let the roots grow deep into your soul and deep into your heart to where it, you become a kind of person who. It's not just what you do, you become a kind of person who's trained yourself to look at other people in a certain kind of way. That's what he's talking about. If you're, if you're a woman and you've been the victim of this kind of look to lust from a man, you know what I'm saying right now. You know what Jesus is talking about. Where you lose your humanity in that moment and someone is looking to you as a mere object to gratify themselves. It's an icky feeling. If you're a man and you've been the perpetrator in this way, then you know exactly what Jesus is talking about. I think we've, we've, we've got this crystallized here. Jesus is naming the problem in the heart of the human condition that would dehumanize self and others to satisfy sexual cravings. The woman or man that we are lusting for becomes objects, uh, becomes objects or uh, like fuel or in the language of the app, tinder, to fuel the fire of lust within but not only that, we also, in that act, we dehumanize ourselves because we become mere animals driven by our own cravings, out of control of our own bodies. This is what makes humans different than animals. An animal, you will, they, they, 
They do not know what it's like to put away a craving. They are driven by instinct and driven by their cravings. It is humans and the human will, the central part of us that makes us uniquely human is will, according to the Bible. We can say, even though I wanna do something, I'm not going to, I'm gonna put it away because I know that human flourishing comes this way. Now, um, before we... I need to pause here and just talk about the Sermon on the Mount in general because Jesus and the Bible are part of some ancient traditions and some ancient ways of looking at reality that we no longer look, we don't lo- no longer see the world through this, through this lens anymore. For millennia, for millennia, and even way before Jesus, in most, I guess you could call successful or thriving cultures, up until the Enlightenment, they believed in, thing, in something called moral laws, okay? Again, Christian or not, you believed in, the societies were built around the idea and the strong objective belief of moral laws. That is, laws that are moral or even relational laws that are just as fixed in the fabric of the universe as natural laws like gravity or E equals MC squared. There are certain things that affect a society, there are certain things when it comes to formation. And that's why in, in the ancient world, especially before the Enlightenment, society was built around, uh, and human formation was built around the pursuit of virtue, more than the pursuit of even knowledge in and of itself. And religion and spirituality and character formation was all in the bucket of knowledge back then. We have since moved morality or spirituality, we've moved that to the bucket of opinion. Science is for all the objective stuff we think, and opinion is for all the, when it comes to moral formation and character formation and how to become a good human. But for, for millennia, any good society was saying the key to becoming, a, um, the key to becoming good or, or doing virtuous things was by becoming a good kind of person. And so there was this pursuit. If you want the good life, if you want the full life and the good life, you've got to become a good person. We have left our, in our culture, we've left our members completely off the rails when it comes to this. We're not used to this kind of teaching from Jesus. One of those ancient ideas is that you become what you practice. You become what you practice. Sorry, squirrel. <laughs> I, you know. You become what you do, and especially what you do. Notice I didn't say do only, but over and over and over again through repetity. You become that kind of a person. Here's, uh, here's some ancient wisdom from, from the Apostle Paul. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. This is, in other words, this is a fixed, non-negotiable, just as objective as the law of gravity. This is going, God's not going to negotiate about this. This is the way it's set up. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows or practices, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh, and what, the, what Paul means by that is these animal desires within our flesh, within our body, He will, of the flesh, reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, again, by now, if you've been a part of our church for a while, you know that eternal life is not only talking about heaven and the hereafter. It's talking about a quality of life now that we can interact with. We would call it the good life. We would call it breathing a, a, a different kind of atmosphere that sets our trajectory toward the, here, the, the thereafter. But right now, he's, so let me read it again. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. In other words, you'll, you'll start dipping into the good life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. The word doing there is our word practice, poieo. Don't, don't grow weary of practicing good. Why? He says, because in due season you will reap good if you don't give up. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. So then, he says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
The Bible, this is something that's lost in our culture. The Bible is all about not just the, the, the thereafter, but about what kind of person are you becoming so that you can, you can interact with the good life now. What is the good life now? In our culture, we have put virtues and character in, a, in, a, in the opinion box or how you're feeling box or maybe how you were raised, traditions, maybe your ethnic background, those types of things. But it's not objective. You can do whatever you want and there's no, there's no connection between what you decide to do and the kind of person you are. You get to decide what kind of person you are. Your habits don't matter. Um, but, we, but ancient wisdom, this is a law. Recently... Um, Recently, pop star Justin Timberlake has been in a little bit of little bit of trouble recently because Britney Spears' memoir has come out, and there she records his relationship with her, and how after she became pregnant, he pushed her to have an abortion, and on and on it goes with his infidelity and his affairs. Now he's been seen in the public life as as this kind of young, good-looking. Um, kind of guy that is kind of fun and kind of, it doesn't matter. He kind of gets away with those types of things. But now it's coming, it's surfacing again and again and again. You cannot get away from what you practice. The Me Too movement, in my mind, was absolute proof of this, that those that practiced uh, pornography on a regular basis became the kind of people the kind of characters like Harry Weinstein that would use a woman to gratify themselves and to commit abusive, atrocious acts to say you cannot have a career, you can't become an actress, so you'll never get into another movie unless you do these types of things with me, unless you let me do this to you. Jesus is very much protecting the dignity of women in this in this passage, in a culture that's very much like ours, and maybe it's not fun to talk about, but it's very much like ours in that men are preferred then and now. And therefore, things are, women end up getting hurt. Jesus, as you can, as you, if you've been following him for a while now, you can imagine that Jesus is not down for that. He's not up for it. He's gonna say, no, no. Why do we do this? Because we have a culture that no longer, that no longer seeks virtue. Instead, what is the, the, the lie at the heart of our culture? Is if you pursue your desires, that is, whatever makes you feel happy, or, um, you know, be who you are and don't let anyone tell you different. If you pursue these desires and fulfill them, that is what human flourishing is. But you have to understand Every culture, including Jesus's, before we're relatively new in this way of thinking. It's unprecedented that a culture thinks like this. Anything before the Enlightenment would say, no, humans are a mixed bag of desire. You know that. We're a mixed bag of desire. And the ancient world, including Jesus, would say some of those desires are good and need to be fed and fueled into flame and need to be encouraged and nurtured, while others of those desires need to be taken out back and shot in the face. We might use the, you know, we don't like the word repress your desires in our culture. Well, Jesus used the word crucify. It was a much stronger word. This is what Jesus, so we, we, we come to the Sermon on the Mount. We don't, this is wild for us, especially when he go, we go on here. When he says, look, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck that bad boy out and throw it away. We go, what the What? Especially in our culture, we think really just for lusting, like looking at a hot girl and say, woo, that really? It's like impossible, we would say. We live in Seattle, <laughs> one of the most progressive sexualized cities in the country, arguably so. We can barely go to the store and get a dozen eggs without being inundated with images that are all around us. And we think, Jesus, what are you talking? And what I want to say is what Jesus is telling us to do here is difficult, yes, but not impossible. And those images are telling us a story, a story of this is the good life. If you fulfill these desires, if you do these things, if you fuel them and light, you know, get them going, this will make you happy. 
talk to Justin Timberlake. See if he's, he's, he's a miserable young man right now. I don't mean that in any disrespect to him. I like him. Very talented young man. Or he's my age. Yeah, young man. Yeah, very talented young man. I like him a lot. He's got charisma and so, much, so many gifts and so many talents. He's a beautiful man in so many ways. But he is reaping what he has sown in a lot of ways. In 2024, it's a different, we don't look at guys like that the same way we did in the, in the 90s and the, in the early 2000s. And he's feeling it. Ask Harry Weinstein or others that lost their careers because they fed and they shaped themselves thinking, oh, this has no bearing on my, on my professional life. This has no bearing on other things. Well, now we know, now, and, and there's data on this, now we know what the Bible has been saying all the whole time. Be careful. This is dangerous. Um, our culture has abandoned these ideas, so this might seem a little foreign to us, but we have to say it. So Jesus is saying that he's making people who are characterized by patience and purity. In our world, we would be a subculture within a culture that loves, that loves the culture. Okay, let's see, what he, let's see what he says, what to do about this. What can we as followers of Jesus do, especially in a sexualized city like Seattle? He gives us a few steps here. What he says, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Wow. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. What? And we think, what in the world? This is, this is crazy. Well, first of all, um, Jesus is not, although this is, this is extreme, Jesus is not talking about self-mutilation. How do I know? Well, because if he was, he missed the, the, the member of the body that is most obvious to cut off here. Okay, here, I'll just, leave, I'll just leave it at that. Just do the basic math. That's not what he's saying. But he is wanting to be extreme. He is wanting, and what he is saying is, at the first sign of lust, deal drastically with it. Don't think of it at, in terms of half measures. Don't, um, don't you know, don't put a Band-Aid on it and pop an Advil. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that you need to amputate or you will stumble, and, and I love that wording there, you will stumble or trip or fall into hell. And if you were here last week, the word is Gehenna. It was an actual place in Jesus's day. Instead of thinking about hell in the hereafter, think about um, pulling hell into, into your life right now. This, this kind of behavior, this kind of character trait will pull hell into your life, will pull hell, whether, or hell into your marriage. We're gonna deal with that in just a second. <laughs> You've that to look forward to. It, it, will, it, will, um, it will wreak havoc in a society. I think we've seen that now, especially I keep thinking of the Me Too movement, of all the people's lives that have been hurt and damaged by this, this, look, this look to lust attitude and character. We've pulled a hell into our lives, hell into our relationships, hell into our societies. This is just what Jesus is saying. And it is, it is you guys, there's really, if, if you've been with someone going through this or if you've lived with this yourself, the consequences of this yourself, there really is no better way to describe it than hell. It is hell on earth. I've sat with so many couples who have been devastated by a, an addiction to pornography. The pain that, you, that I've seen in people's eyes and maybe that you know all too well, it's not just a problem or a setback or an issue. It is devastating. And it is ripping apart our society. This is just what Jesus was talking about. And he's saying, look, be drastic with it. At the first sign of it, do something drastic with it. Um, <clears throat> I'm editing as I'm going because I'm noticing there's younger people here today. I had some juicier stuff to tell you, but see me after. Um, anyways, 
Um, the idea is, um, it's better to be, so, so here's the idea. It will cost you to live this way. Okay, that's what I'm trying to tell you. I cannot um, sit here before you and to say, look, to have the good life will cost you nothing. To get the kind of life and virtuous character and good living that Jesus is talking about as the, as the new way to be human, as he is human, it's easy, just don't do this anymore. No, I, I need to be upfront with you here. This is talking about great cost to you. In other words, you may not be able to watch some things that other people watch. You may have to explain why there's a filter on your computer the way I do. Where this is a safe place. I've got filters on all my devices because I'm scared of stumbling in that direction. It's so easy and so accessible. You may have to have that kind of a life. You may have to talk to somebody weekly or check in with folks and say, how, how are you doing? people that love you and that are safe for you. There's things that, drastic things that you and I as followers of Jesus will have to do to keep ourselves away from what this cultural values say that they are. But you see, Jesus is not saying, um, just leaving it in and of itself. He's saying, this is the way to having a virtuous good life. Um, I love how Dale Bruner put it. He said, would you rather... I'd rather limp through this life than to leap into hell. I mean, you put it that way, it's like, yeah. I'd rather limp through this life a little bit. I'd rather not be able to watch something. I'd rather take my screen time down. I'd rather not, okay, you guys, I'm just gonna be bold with you here. I don't have social media, and this is one of the big reasons for it. I do have social media, but if you've tried to get a hold of me on social media and you realize that I never get back to you, it's because I don't check it. I don't, I don't have it on my phone. I took the app off my phone. Why? Because you, you swipe to the whatever way it is left or whatever, the search portion on Instagram. There's nothing good there. There's ads there that are, not, that are, that are meant to catch my eye and get that sexual drive moving and that get me to beg for a second, third, fourth look and on and on and on I go. I want to protect my life and I want to flourish in my life. I don't, and I want to protect my wife and my son. And I'm not perfect by any means. I have a long history of struggling with pornography. I, was, I ran into it when I was 12. Um, I found it in a, in, a, in a friend's house that I was spending the night at. And it was all downhill from there. A couple of years later, a youth pastor's wife seduced me and molested me. I, I was 12, 25-year-old woman, beautiful. I didn't stand a chance. And I share that with you to say, oh, how the teachings of Jesus have been like water to my soul in this struggle as he's both affirmed my sexuality and blessed how he's made me, but also taught me how to begin to kill and to crucify this part of my flesh. So I am one in this area that have got to take drastic measures. My phone is a hair's breadth away from being a dum-dum phone. <laughs> like if you try to look up something on my phone, maybe even your bank account, you will be frustrated. It'll say, no. But that's okay. That's okay. That's all right. I'd rather limp through this life and not be able to, do, I'd rather be at a Super Bowl party and when the halftime show comes on, I'd rather be the one guy that goes like that. And maybe, look, maybe for you, that doesn't do it for you. Maybe it's not a big deal. I've, you know, there's people where that's just, they're, they're so, they've been practicing a certain way for so long that they just don't stumble with those things. But for me, I've got to do that. I've, I've been the guy in my group of friends that does this. Where, when everybody else is watching it. And that's all right. It's embarrassing, sure, but that's all right. I want to grow in this. And I want the kind of life that Jesus is talking about here. So he's talking about something that's drastic. And he's talking about something as followers of Jesus that costs us dearly. Costs us something. Yep. Yep. 
Yeah. Yeah, I can see how you would say that. I, I would say yes and no. I would say on the one hand, um, I can see how you'd say that. But I think if you understand hell the way this is talking about it, leaping into hell is very much in this life. He's talk, Jesus is talking to his followers. He's not, talking, and he's not talking to people who are unsaved versus people who are saved. He's saying, hey, look, you as followers can experience a hell of a life right here, right now. I'm, I've met several Christians who love the Lord, but who, and in my life to a certain degree, but who have brought in certain pain and hurt because they've practiced a certain way. And there's no better way to describe it than living through hell. Certainly, it also is a trajectory to that place. Uh, the, again, we're talking about developing into the kind of people who are trajectorying into heaven, you know, or versus versus hell. At some point, if there is a certain part of your life that is out of control, excuse me, if there's a certain part of your life that is not being redeemed by Jesus and it's taking over and taking over and taking over, it's, it's okay to question if you're following Jesus at all. That's all right. That's okay. That's a, probably a very healthy thing to go, okay, wait, am I really in his kingdom. Remember what the kingdom is. It is the range of God's effective will. A kingdom is where, if you're a king and you have a kingdom, it is where what you want to happen happens. Is your sexuality in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of Jesus, where what he wants to happen there happens? And that's what we're talking about here. And like I would say, we would think, we, we're almost, this is certainly something that most men struggle with, um, and there's just data on that. I'm not guessing or projecting onto you. This is, there's just straight data on that. Um, and we would say in our culture, that's impossible. I would say, no, not impossible. Difficult, yes, but not impossible. I know young men who are, are actively walking in victory and purity. I know them. I also, rare, but I know them. I know people who, uh, young men who walk around with a dumb phone, with a flip phone. And I just applaud their, it's beautiful, incredible followers of Jesus because they, they, they know, I, I, I'm not buying into the lie of the culture that says if I feed this, I'll be happy. If I get that, I'll be good. I'm not buying into that lie. I'm gonna walk against it. Okay. Got a few more minutes in you to talk about divorce? Wow, nervous laughter. All right, here we go. It's going to be brief because we're going to get into it in detail in chapter 19. And I just want to clarify some things. He uses this phrase again. He says, it was, said, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So he's quoting from a very obscure chapter in the Old Testament. He's, he's, um, in fact, you can turn there. It's Deuteronomy chapter 24. Um, this is the last book in the Pentateuch. I encourage you to turn there. I'll read it to you so you can see what we're dealing with here. Look, this is Moses. He says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she, uh, so if then she finds no favor in his eyes, pay attention to that word, no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency, pay attention to that, in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of, out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and here's big hypothetical scenarios here and the latter man ha uh, hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce also and puts it in, in her hands and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination to the Lord. Okay, so here's what we, you need to understand in brief what we're talking about here. Um, first of all, this is not a command. This is a case law. And it was meant primarily by Moses, or God to Moses, to protect women because in the ancient Near East, um, there, it was a high, people could people were divorcing their wives for the smallest things, 
but they weren't providing a certificate of divorce. So she could not remarry and she would end up like begging or on the street or a prostitute or something like that. And under Babylonian law and, and most ancient Near East laws, the first husband could come and retake his wife up to five years whenever he wanted. And Moses was saying, not okay with that. Give her a certificate of divorce so that she can say, I'm free and clear of you and I can remarry and come under someone else's protection and thrive and actually have a life again. This is, this is a beautiful case law that is meant to protect women in the ancient world where women were being mistreated. That's what this is. It's actually quite beautiful when you think of it that way. But in Jesus's day, about a generation before Jesus, um, a rabbi um, his name was Rabbi Hillel. He, if you notice, there's this very, obs- there's very obscure, oh, I, already, I already turned away from it. Um, there's very obscure language here in this verse. <clears throat> Let me turn there again. I should have stayed there. Here we go. Look at this obscure language. She finds no favor in his eyes, or he's found some kind of indecency. And about a generation before Jesus, this famous rabbi named Rabbi Hillel, he came out and said, in that, that obscurity is meant to be obscure. It's just as obscure in the, in the Hebrew language, by the way. Um, and so he said, any indecency means any indecency. So he promoted this rapid, uh, easy way for men to divorce their wives if they, I mean, and I'm not making this up, if they burnt his toast. You could divorce your wife under Rabbi Hillel. If she no longer was attractive to him, that's fine. He could divorce his wife under Rabbi Hillel. And another rabbi named Rabbi Shammai, he came against Hillel and said, no, that's not what this is. This is He's talking about sexual immorality. He's talking about adultery. He's talking about if she goes and sleeps with another man, then he can, su- he can supply this divorce. And then there was another rabbi that made it even more, that made it looks if she no longer pleases you anymore with the eyes. That's, you can just divorce her. Jesus, I want you to know, Jesus is weighing in on that topic. This is not a detailed treatise. We'll get that in chapter 19. We're going to come to that. But this is not a detailed treatise from Jesus about what he thinks about divorce and when you can do it and when you cannot. He's basically saying, no, Hillel is wrong. Shammai is right. It was an easy divorce culture in Jesus's day and it just erupted and there was this raging debate going on. And Jesus is saying, no, look, this is for, this is, this, this is a disciple of mine is committed and loves his spouse deeply and is always committed to reconciliation. This is not uh, about, in fact, you might, a modern person would say, what about beatings? What about abuse? What about those types of things? And this brief uh, uh, treatment here bugs us. We're gonna get to that in chapter 19. This is not what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, look, it should not be, this is, what is marriage? Marriage is an act of the will. It is, which is love, which is the central part of the human being to say, I'm going to love you till death do us part. And as far as it is able with me, I am completely and utterly committed to, your, to restoration, to forgiveness, to, um, to your best and your flourishing, even if you've hurt me, even if you've gone away. That is the, that's the heart of the disciple that Jesus is talking about. But sometimes, if there is ongoing infidelity and in, um unrepentance, he was saying, look, I get, I get that. It's basically saying you're calling the death of a marriage, even though you haven't officially, uh, like divorce in Jesus's eyes, is um, calling, basically calling something that's already there. It's already dead. You've killed your marriage. A divorce is the death of marriage. That's what it is. And some people that I know are walking around with dead marriages even though they haven't called it yet because of ongoing unrepentance and ongoing um, infidelity that has just wrecked the trust of that marriage. But Jesus is saying up to that point, my followers love their spouses deeply and will never and will try as much as they can to hold that. Like I said, we'll get to that more in chapter 19. But here's what I want to point out. This is very much on purpose and linked to the previous section. 
The idea of adultery and looking to lust, he is, he is on purpose drawing a direct line into the destruction of marriage and particularly the mistreatment of women. It's very linked. Again, whether we like to say it or not, and you can, you can do your own research. I know this is not popular or politically correct to say, but you can do your own research. This is not just my opinion, but we, like then, this is very relevant. We live in a culture, we live in a high divorce culture. So did Jesus. Even though it was more religiously conservative, it was also an easy divorce culture. We also live in an easy divorce culture, so it's very relevant. Also, we, as egalitarian as we are, we do live in a culture that that um, divorce is more profitable for men than it is for women. That's just, that's just fact, you guys. That's just, there's so much out, there's so much data on that. Why? Because, it is, because we know that men are typically drawn to esteem and prestige and beauty, where, where women are more drawn to, in a mate that has... Um, money that has status. Again, not politically correct to say, but there's data on this. Women are drawn to men with status, with esteem. Men are drawn to beauty. Men in our culture typically, as they get older, get more status and more esteem and more money. Women in our culture, well, in any culture, the older they get, the less they fall out of the cultural definition of what beauty is. Hence, we've got a culture that's ripping marriages apart in that way. And it's much more profitable for the man because they still get their esteem and yet the woman falls into disrepute because she no longer matches the cultural status for beauty and desire anymore. And Jesus, I, this, thank you for your grace, this is a tough conversation, but Jesus is saying in his day, just like now, I'm not good with that. I wanna protect women. I'm here to go to bat for women. I love women. And how I'm gonna protect women is by men who are committed to women. Men whose marriages are a marriage of commitment and love and goodwill and that has teeth in it, that's not going anywhere, that's stable, that provides safety for a woman to flourish and to be loved. That's who my disciples will be. That's what he's, in a, again, more on that in chapter 19. He's weighing in on this moment. He's saying Hillel is wrong. Where are we at from here? Thank you for bearing with me through this tough conversation. Where are we at from here? I think the disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, live lives of repentance in this regard. What do disciples do when we sin? We, you guys, we live in a culture where it's so easy to sin in this regard. It is, the Bible says this is a sin that easily ensnares, especially in a culture like ours. And there are folks in here, no doubt, that you have dabbled in these types of things that are maybe hooked or, or have a habit around some of these types of things. Look, I want you to know, in the Bible, sexual sin is not the end-all, be-all. I know I came from a church tradition, and maybe you did as well, where sexual sin was like the biggest gasp in the room, right? Uh, you, you know, if, you, if you've been in that situation, I mean, no one talked about their sexual sin because it was like, unspokenly, the worst of them all. Like, the Bible is not that way. I'm not here to tell you that. The, the, this, is, this is not the end-all, be-all, and there is hope, and there is a way out, and that's what's so beautiful about this. Jesus offers a way out and practical steps that we can reverse this together as we follow Jesus together. Sexual sin is not the end all be all, but it, you know, and there are people here that have been dabbled in it and there are beautiful, wonderful people here that you've been divorced and you're still following Jesus and you're, doing, you're following him with all your heart. I get all that and that's wonderful. There is life after divorce, totally. And Jesus welcomes you to follow him, absolutely. But it is sin. And look, what do, what, do God, what do people of God do when we sin? We repent. Not to get God off of our backs, although you know, obviously we want to have, be right with him, but to step back into a flourishing life, to step back into his way, his way of flourishing, to draw close to him where we can get those, those nutrients again. Look, 
Repentance is not a one-time deal, especially in a culture like ours. This is an ongoing thing where we might stumble, but we drag ourselves back into the way of Jesus. That's been my struggle with this. And I thank God for his patience with me as he has lovingly, patiently nurtured me back to him as I've had to figure especially this area out in my life. He's been so good and so long-suffering and so patient to bring me back to his table every time. But you have to repent. You have to, you have to, it's costly. You have to make amends. And that's what I think we we should do as followers of Jesus this morning. Search your heart. This hopefully is a safe place. If you've been coming here for any length of time, I think you know, maybe this is uncomfortable, but you know we are safe people. This is a safe place. Your home groups are people that are not going anywhere anytime soon. No one here is anywhere close to abandoning anyone. That's not the way of Jesus. We just read that. We are long-suffering. We stick with each other, and we bear each other's burdens, right? So that's what we ought to do together as we... I'm trying to lead the way with that by being vulnerable with myself. We've got to do this together and keep repenting and keep repenting so that we can show the world what it's like to be a follower of Jesus and to start living the good life. There's this great line in Alcoholics Anonymous that says, put away the wreckage of your past and start living in the light and your life will start to heal. They're talking about repentance. Confess. Make amends. Go to someone and admit at least your, at least your part of, the, of it. It's not, not to say that they don't have a part to play. They, they probably do, but that's not your business. You just come with your part. Say, look, I, I blew it in this way. Forgive me. I'm sorry. And come to the Lord. And some of us need to gouge. Look, you might think it's immature or childish. It's actually the most mature, wonderful thing you can do. Come to, come to the Lord and say, okay, I'm gonna put a block on my TV. Be honest. And in the words of St. Augustine, to thine own self be true. Be real with yourself. What do you need to do? And I'll tell you what, anybody in this church will only applaud you for that. Someone just came to me recently who said, I, I, just, I need to do something drastic. And I had nothing, I was like, okay, my respect for you just went, went up. You're following Jesus. Nothing to be ashamed of there. We applaud you for that. And we're a room full of broken yet beautiful people who know what it's like to struggle, who know what it's like to slug it out in this world, in this culture. Repent. What do you need to do? The reason I say this is because it probably has something to do with community. You cannot walk this kind of a life by yourself. I remember I stood in front of a group of men And I confessed the details of my sexual sin to this group of men. And you guys, it was not fun. (laughs) I couldn't even look them in the eye. I kept my head down. I was a very young man. I kept my head down. And I said what I needed to say. And then I stepped down and they had snack time. They had like, it was like a, it was like a uh, fellowship time, snack time. And I remember I went to the table with my plate. I got some Doritos, just wanting to leave, run out, you know. And I remember I sat down at my, at, you know, the typical church plastic table, and I'm just eating my Doritos. And on the other end of the table, I hear someone hit, sit, sit down, and there's this old, beautiful saint, this beautiful man, and he's just eating his Thing, and he, he looked over, he had to have been like, I don't know, 70 something. He looks over at me and he said, hey. And I said, and I, yeah. And he goes, I'm not ashamed of you. That's all he said. And it was such a powerful moment. I felt the shame lift from me. Just an older man saying, I know everything about you now and it doesn't change a thing. You guys, if you have not experienced that kind of freedom, 
Either you're wanting to get it or someone else is waiting to get it from you. It's a gift that is irreplaceable. It is such a powerful, incredible gift and it's the way of Jesus. To say truth but also freedom. You know, Lord, yeah, I love you but what drastic thing do we need to do to help you out? How can I help? How can I jump in? That's what I told the young man recently. What, what can I do to help you? We're in it to win it. But that comes through the first step of vulnerability. Home groups are a great place for that. A cup of coffee, a phone call, whatever it needs to do. Be honest, and maybe it's in steps. But you know there's safe people in here. Please, be free. I'm inviting you not to, conf- not to be embarrassed. The Bible says confess your sins one to another and be embarrassed and pointed at and laughed at. No, that's not what it says. <laughs> it says confess your sins one to another and be healed. And that's what I experienced that day was a healing so deep by a guy I didn't even know. I didn't even know the guy. He said, I'm not ashamed. As he's eating his Doritos, I'm not ashamed of you. Oh, freedom, healing came to my heart. And I want that for all of us. What a testimony it would be for us to say, I follow Jesus and I used to be in bondage, but you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm freer now than I've ever been. And God loves me, and there's a group of people who love me no matter what. Let's do it. Father, thank you for this ancient wisdom. Thank you that you are making us into the kind of people who no longer look at others as, as objects, as tinder for our fire, as, as ways to satisfy our own lusts and own cravings. Thank you, Lord, for this. I pray, God, that you would um, pierce our spirits and our hearts now as we worship you and as we come to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.